This episode of Milestones contains explicit language that may not be suitable for some listeners. This is Milestones, in partnership with WBGO Studios. I'm your host, Angelica Beater. Welcome to the podcast, and I'm so glad you're here joining me for this episode. Here, we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. In just a moment, we'll get into the second part of a special two-part episode of Milestones with drummer, band leader, vocalist, producer, and educator, T.S. Monk, in celebration of his iconic father's Monk's Dream recording, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary. In part two, we discuss what many consider to be Monk's great quartet, with saxophonist Charlie Rouse, bassist John Orr, and drummer Frankie Dunlop, Monk's role as a mentor, and why his high priest of bebop moniker deserves expansion. We also dive into the special relationship between Monk and his mentor, Duke Ellington. This and so much more. We begin by talking about Thelonious Monk's rarely discussed activism. Let's get into it. So this was his first album for Columbia, right? Was that a big deal at the time? Like he had come from Riverside and done tremendous work there, but it seems like Columbia was like a a big deal. I mean, was well, it was because Columbia was the biggest record company in the world at the time, uh, and uh, they were home for who? They were home for Billy Holiday, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were home for Dave Brubeck. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so they had a, a tremendous footprint in the marketplace. And um, Thelonious, you know, was very, very pleased, although there were still things that didn't work for him. For instance, he went to Steinway to get a piano because Steinway was giving pianos to George Shearing and Dave Brubeck and all these people. And he went to Steinway for a piano and all they had for him was Thelonious who? So that's why. You know, the, the the piano that we recently donated to the African-American Museum in Washington, D.C. is a is a Baldwin piano because Baldwin uh, sold them a piano for half price. But the fact of the matter is that all his greatest recordings, he played a Steinway piano. And so Steinway wants that association, mm. even though they never treated him right when he was alive. You know, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of that. I'm hearing the lesson that you're giving right now is that the the painstaking um, sacrifice of being a genius, like you said, there's there's all the wonderful things that come with it, but there's also that other really deep stuff. You know, treating- let, me tell you, let me tell you something, Angelica, because this is something that I just realized maybe last year. Thelonious. Mm. And this is going to sound this is going to sound weird to your audience, uh, but I'm at that age where I just got to say how I feel. Come on now, you've earned that. Thelonious was one of those rare artists, like Ella Fitzgerald, and I think there was a young girl, a hip hop artist, or maybe she wasn't hip hop, but an artist recently who won the uh, weekly talent show at the Apollo so many times. They said, "Get out of here." He was one of those. He was one of those, and. My whole life, I was very proud of that. You know, mm-hmm. Daddy was one of those people, man, that he won the, the talent show so many times. They said, you, you got to leave. And then, as a Black man, it occurred to me 
that maybe that wasn't such a wonderful event in his life. Mm. Because maybe for a black man, it was more of that old adage that you're not good enough to qualify. And now you're oh, you're so good, you're overqualified. And maybe that was interpreted internally by Thelonious as a form of rejection. Mm-hmm. As a form, because it's not like they said, get out of here. And then all of a sudden, all these career opportunities opened up for him as it would for a white artisan. You know, so it, it, that takes me to your point about the downside of genius. You know, maybe that maybe Thelonious didn't feel so great about them telling him, oh, you're so good. Go away. Right. That, that's been a very much a part of the black experience in America. That's right. We had to create a, a, a baseball league. And it took us until 1947 for them to let Jackie Robinson into the league. And of course, he excelled. And, you know, it took years and years for them to let us into the NBA. And then we excelled. And it took for years and years. And the list goes on and on of things that white society. And and we have to remember that the Apollo was owned by white folks. It wasn't owned by black folks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, so... I think that's why my father's uh, uh, view of his success, even in 1963, uh, was somewhat tempered, you know, because he didn't. um, It was the Europeans that first accepted him. I mean, they ignored him, you know, for the most part in America. And it wasn't until he won the international critics poll that American critics started saying, well, maybe there's something to this Thelonious Monk guy, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I also remembered that when he was on the cover of Time Magazine, there was a bar on the corner. So we lived on 63rd Street. There was a bar, Pat's Bar on the corner of 64th Street. And I remember it was almost like he was more impressed that his boys in Pat's Bar that he grew up with were more impressed he was more impressed that they were impressed that he was on the cover of time as time magazine than he was about all the critics and all the white folks that were you know i mean he was you know he had a i was talking i was doing an interview uh last week and uh it was about bud powell and we were talking about drug addiction and all that and i've come to the conclusion that you know all the drug addiction that seemed to be so pervasive in jazz in the 19, you know, in the in the in the middle of the last century, let's just say. Mm-hmm. I've concluded that artists like Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday had a lot of reason to want to escape. Mm. Plenty of reason to want to shoot dope and just because they were in a crazy, crazy world, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, the documentary about Billie Holiday, you know, J. Edgar Hoover personally didn't like the fact that she had a mink coat and a Cadillac, you know? Yeah. Oh, you know, when I start thinking about this stuff, I say, 
the day that, you know, Dorothy Dandridge put her toe in the pool and they emptied a goddamn pool. You know, it sounds absurd to me and you, but how did it make her feel? Yeah, exactly. Imagine that shit. Mm -hmm. And the same white men who sanctioned that kind of shit wanted to get in her pants. How about that? About that, you know? So this whole American experience, you know, success has always been tempered mm-hmm. for African-Americans. And I can no longer just ignore that part of the story. Yes. A big part of the story for my father, for his contemporaries, and for many of us still to this very, very day. You know, Thelonious got beaten by the police, you know. You know, when I thought about this, too, I said in 1963, despite his success, Thelonious' closest friend outside of his family and his wife and children, the closest person to him was the richest white woman in the world. And I said, I wonder what J. Edgar Hoover thought about that shit. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I know they knew they knew who Thelonious was because of who he was hanging with. That's right. So he goes down to Delaware, gets stopped by the police, right? And in a world where white cops beat Negroes in their heads with their billy clubs on a regular basis all day, every day, what do the cops do to Thelonious Monk? They beat his hands. Mm. And so my mother came, said he came home. They didn't beat his head. They beat his hands. That's right. So why did they beat this? How did they know to beat his hands? Mm -hmm. See, Angelica, it's crazy, you know. And all this stuff, I'm saying this, had to affect him. Oh, yeah. Had to affect him. He kept it from me and my sister. But it had to affect him. I think about a song like Bright Mississippi um, and what was happening in Birmingham around that time, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing of those children. And I think I think I'm really glad you're bringing this up because um, and I have to shout out, uh, you know, Robin D.G. Kelly, the wonderful scholar, academic musician who wrote the definitive monk biography with you know obviously the help of you and and lots of other people in the in the village of Thelonious monk but i think that one of the things he highlighted in the book that is really sort of supporting everything you're saying is that he was tremendously i think people like to cherry pick certain little sound bites of things that he might have said on race but mm-hmm. He deeply cared about the Black community. He deeply understood what it meant to be Black in America. And a song like Bright Mississippi was inspired by what what was going on down there. And then he had done some benefits for one of the children who were murdered by uh, white supremacists in that church. And uh, he had done things for SNCC. Yes. Unraisers for Paul Robeson. He was part of the very first national broadcast for the NAACP. You know, 
because people used to tell me, oh, Monk, oh, he's not politically aware. Mm -hmm. All, you know, all of those, that whole generation, Monk, Dizzy, you know, Miles, oh, they all came from down south, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, and they all traveled through the south. They all saw the strange fruit, mm -hmm. all saw it. And to think that these highly intellectual black men and women, to think that any of them were not aware of the political environment in which they had been born is it's just stupid exactly it's just exactly. stupid to think that that they weren't aware and monk was so into his music that he wasn't he wasn't thinking about the politics how could you not think about the politics everything for african americans from 1619 forward has been political that's right one of the things i love about bright mississippi you brought up billy holiday and and strange fruit and we immediately i mean it's one of the most gut wrenching just, oh, you just feel like your soul is being ripped out of you when she sings that or uh, Coltrane's Alabama, you know, where they have this mood to them that is in alignment with what's happening. I think what's striking about Bright Mississippi is that it's a juxtaposition. Yeah. It feels like, let me give you joy. Let me give you hope, Mississippi. You know, yeah. it, it's it's stunning that it's it's this upbeat bright Mississippi. It's, it's, um, I feel like it's putting this beautiful light on black people. Look at my people, you know, which yeah. is really that I'm, I would imagine that that was a very thoughtful, um, artistic decision because I, I find that he, when I listen to his music there, there's a lot of emotional juxtapositions. And I, so I hear that in, uh, in bright Mississippi, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, one of the um, qualities that Thelonious uh, had as a composer, uh, most people, most composers have sort of a formula that they write within. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and so compositions are similar, okay? Um, but when you're a genius as a composer, you have that ability to write really different things, you know, and that's the quality, you know, what you're talking about, what you hear from a bright Mississippi, as opposed to what you may hear from a crevice with Nelly. One of the 
the real um, features of a genius composer is to is to convey various emotions that are markedly different from composition to composition. And so what you describe with what you hear within Wright, Mississippi is so different from what Thelonious, the, uh, uh, the different kind of sorrow and trepidation that he conveyed in Crepuscule with Nelly, which he wrote for his wife while she was going through really a, uh, 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 where her life was endangered, you know, um, medically. And she was about to have an operation. And then you take something like Monk's Dream, which is like really happy. Monk's Dream is a happy melody. I mean, for real, you know. And these compositions are so very, very different. One as opposed to the other. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing to me. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I listen to my father's compositions and I, you know, I say, how did he write this? And then he wrote that. And then he wrote this. And then if you take a, you know, I was yesterday, I was talking to somebody and I said, Monk made an album called Thelonious Monk Plays Duke Ellington. Okay. And it's a trio record. And if you listen to that record and you had never heard Duke Ellington, you would think that Monk wrote all those tunes because, and the ama- what makes it amazing is once you've heard Duke Ellington's music and then you listen to this Monk Place Duke Ellington product, you realize that Thelonious Monk was enough of a genius to put his stamp on Duke Ellington's music, and at the same time, never compromise the compositional integrity of Duke Ellington. I mean, the respect for Duke on that record is unbelievable, and yet and still, it sounds like Monk all the way. Stunning. Absolutely it's, stunning. It's so stunning. Uh, you know, I am so, sometimes I pinch myself when I say, this guy was really my father. It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful fortune, but also such a fortune that you are his son as well. I think about your album uh, in 1997, Monk on Monk, where you also did uh, Bright Mississippi. How do you choose, when you do play your father's music, how do you choose <laughs> what you're going to do? What? How do you choose the repertoire? You know, um, 
I kind of like everything he did. <laughs> yeah. That's that's my problem, you know. Uh, and um, what I like about the vibe I got from my father relative to his music was that one thing I know he liked, he liked you to do his music differently from the way he did it, you know? So, you know, I came up with an arrangement on Monk on Monk of Little Rudy Tootie that, you know, that was very different from the way he played it, you know? And most recently, I tell you, this so-called, for lack of a better term, smooth jazz version, uh, a tune that I'm doing is actually my uh, reinterpretation of Straight No Chaser. Oh, I, essentially wow. took, I essentially took Straight No Chaser and pulled it all apart and put it back together. And if it was like this, Originally, I put it back together like that, you know, and that's that's what I've always tried to do with Thelonious music, Thelonious's music, you know, like you know we did Ruby My Dear on Monk on Monk, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've always heard women sing Ruby My Dear, you know, but Ruby My Dear was actually a lyric about a man talking to a woman, so I had Kevin Mahogany. Sing Ruby, my dear. Had a guy sing Ruby, my dear. You know, uh, uh, Thelonious never played a solo on Crappy School with Nelly. So I had Wayne Shorter play a solo on Crappy School with Nelly, and so on and so on. Uh, but the tunes, you know, um, who was I talking to? I was talking to someone um, two days ago. And I said, Thelonious is now second to Duke Ellington. Second to Duke. And Duke was his mentor. And he knew Duke. He introduced me to Duke. But Thelonious is second to Duke Ellington as the most recorded composer in the history of jazz at this point in history. Right? Wow. Duke had 3,000 tunes. Thelonious got 100. Mm -hmm. So that tells you something about the impact of Thelonious's 100 tunes. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I think about Monk's Dream and I I think about Roy Hargrove and Mulgrew Miller and Brad Meldow. And, and I mean, just Chick Corea. I mean, just the list goes on. At Carmen McRae. It's amazing Monk's impact uh, over the last now 50 or 60 years. And his the three primary proponents of modern jazz, Miles Davis, Monk was his mentor. John Coltrane, Monk was his mentor. And probably the most pervasive stylist in the history of jazz piano, Bud Powell, Monk was his mentor. So I submit to you, and you're following that although Thelonious was called the high priest of bebop, and he participated, he was a serious participant along with Dizzy and Bird in the development of bebop, was the father of modern jazz. He really, really was. And that's his greatest contribution 
to jazz is that, you know, without Monk, because bebop, bebop was essentially standard, uh, for the most part, artists were taking standard repertoire mm-hmm. and writing new melodies on top of these standard combinations of chords and harmonic sequences and that kind of stuff. And along comes Monk, right? And he's got new harmonics and new ways to put them together. And so he had the key that opened the door for modern jazz and Miles Davis and Coltrane and a whole herd of cats, Ornette and all these guys came rushing through that door. But when you talk to those guys, they always talked about Monk. When the critics weren't talking about Monk, the artisans themselves, they were talking about Monk. Miles Davis, I bet you didn't notice. Do you know that Miles Davis recorded Round Midnight 37 times? No, I did not know that. 37 times. That's unbelievable. That is a statement. That is a hell of a statement. Yeah, man. You know? So, you know, to get back to your original question about Monk in 1963, I don't think he took himself as seriously as the world took him. Mm -hmm. And that was one of his finest qualities, I think. Mm -hmm. That enabled him to do what he did because he was just being himself, you know? Yeah. When everybody was changing and, you know, they were telling all these musicians, oh man, you need to do that too with a rock beat and all of that. The thing that people loved about Monk was, oh, but if you go hear Monk, Monk gonna give you Monk. Right. He ain't changing up for nobody. You wanna hear Monk? That's what you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that, you know, even though I didn't get it in 1963, but I got it in 1969. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Tell me about this band. We have Charlie Rouse, who ended up being his his uh, mainstay sideman, bassist John Orr, and drummer Frankie Dunlop. And, and to your point, this being your favorite recording of your dad's, um, certainly the tune anyway. What of this chemistry, what was it about this band that many people share your sentiment in that this was this was some of his finest recording with with this band? What was it about this band? Well, first of all, um, Frankie Dunlop was almost a he was almost a stand up comedian. He was a lot of fun. I recall that because I spent a lot of time on the road, me and Boo Boo were on the road with my father in the hotel room. And so I saw Frankie Dunlop with my father in, uh, you know, in very social situations. And he was always telling jokes and he'd do female impersonations. <laughs> and he, he was really a piece of work. And um, Thelonious was kind of a, he had a call and response aspect to his solo style that I think Frankie Dunlop really responded to in a way Mm -hmm. that I don't think any other 
drummer that worked with him, although they were great. Ben Riley was great. Max mm -hmm. was great. Art was great. Roy Haynes was great. You know, even there were moments when I think I was great when I was with him. But um, but Frankie had this ability to respond to a statement that Monk would make in his own way. It wasn't just mimicking, you know, like mimic, you know, like mm -hmm. mimicking what Monk would play. Mm -hmm. It was actually a response to a statement. Mm. You, know, you know, Monk would do la dee do be do ba da ba. You know, that was Frankie's answer to that was da ba. You know, and that, and I think that really appealed to Thelonious. I think that Frankie really, really appealed to Thelonious. And um, John Orr was just swinging, just mm. just a swinging bass player. Now Rouse, Rouse is interesting, and um, this is what I think Rouse was about with Monk. So Thelonious comes up; he's introduced to the public by Coleman Hawkins, traditional. You know, out of the you know Ben Webster. All them cats and and Thelonious, you know, makes a lot of early recordings with Sonny Rollins, who's out of the same tradition, that heavy duty tenor sound. Okay. And then this almost mutual admiration society appears in John Coltrane and Thelonious. And this is why I say this. So Coltrane comes along. Coltrane did not have that heavy, bottomy kind of tenor sound of Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster and Sonny Rollins. Mm -hmm. uh, Coltrane had a lighter, more focused kind of sound, you know, almost closer to an alto than a tenor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Coltrane plays with Monk, and then they split up. And what happens? Something very interesting happens. Coltrane forms a quartet and he gets this young piano player that's got this new harmonic sense and rhythmic sense, like a monk in McCoy Tyner. Mm -hmm. And he goes after this young drummer that has sort of a on top of the beat sound that is very similar to Shadow Wilson, who was the drummer with Monk when Coltrane was with him. Okay? Monk, right, goes and gets this new tenor player, this young tenor player in Charlie Rouse that doesn't have that heavy-duty Sonny Rollins, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster tenor sound. He's got this new, focused, lighter, almost altoish sound like Coltrane. They impacted each other. Wow. That's why I think Rouse worked so well for Monk. Nor was Rouse playing sort of the standard vocabulary 
that had been coming out of the tenor. Mm. And Coltrane wasn't playing the standard vocabulary that was coming out of the tenor. Not that that standard vocabulary was not all right, because Sonny Rollins, I mean, forget about it. You can't mess with him. You can't mess with Sonny. You did. But Sonny was of a certain tradition. Coltrane had those sensibilities, but was speaking with a different vocabulary, a different alphabet, if you were. Mm. And so was Rouse. And I think that's why Monk went with Rouse and Frankie Dunlop, because they had a new sound. And I think he had been, prof- I think Monk had been profoundly impacted by Coltrane, and Coltrane went with Elvin Jones and McCoy Tyner because he had been profoundly impacted by Monk. That is that is an absolutely brilliant takeaway. Wow, wow! If you yeah. listen to the if you listen to those two chords, and and to end it all, from that point on, Monk's ensemble was a quartet, and from that point on. Coltrane's ensemble. Was <laughs> That's right. They That's both found that environment was perfect for what they wanted to do. I met McCoy Tyner one time in my life. Uh, I ran into him at the Blue Note after I went to see him at the Blue I never got to see Elvin, um, you know, live and in person. But I did get to see McCoy. And uh, after the gig, you know, he was so humble, so approachable and kind. And I said, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, Uncle Thelonious and boy, he just had the most wonderful things to say about him. You know, he said he's, you know, one of the greatest composers to ever live. And he just went on and on and on. And yeah. so he wrote a tune he, called High Priest. Ah, oh, oh, yeah. That's one of that's one of McCoy's most famous compositions is, is High Priest. You have to check it out. I'll he was, check it out. Absolutely adored Thelonious. He, he yeah. you know, and I think, you know, I mean, although McCoy had his own rhythmic thing, uh, harmonically, harmonically, uh uh he was he was very profoundly uh uh influenced, influenced by Monk. And of course, you know, the, the greatest thing about artists like Monk and McCoy, if you know anything about them, it's their left hand that really has all the meat and potatoes. Oh, in yeah. Fact, in fact, we went to see Duke Ellington. Me and my mother and Boo Boo and my father, he was playing at the Rainbow Grill. And we went one night. And I'll never forget this because we got there maybe 10 minutes late for the show. And the Rainbow Grill is is a huge room, and you have these big doors in the back. And when they opened the doors and we stepped in, I'll never forget it, Duke Ellington stopped the band. He stopped the band. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, you have to excuse me for stopping the band. But the baddest left hand just walked in the door, Thelonious Monk, and the room just broke out. And that's how profoundly respectful Duke was of Thelonious. And 
Duke was Thelonious' mentor. I mean, you know, um, Duke, Jelly Roll Morton, Art Tatum, and Willie DeLion Smith were the four piano players that really impacted Thelonious. I think about, uh, you know, Monk doing uh, Newport with Ellington in 62, the year before Monk's Dream comes out. And Ellington and Strayhorn writing this arrangement. I think it was Strayhorn who wrote this arrangement of Monk's Dream. And that's the next album that he records. And I think about how profound that meeting must have been because you have a you're a pianist as a guest with a pianist. Yeah. And with, you know, and it just seems like Duke. I mean, because I, I I heard I went on YouTube and I found a recording of it. And you hear Duke Ellington just like having the time of his life, you know, orchestrating the band, but he's, he's giving it up so effortlessly to, to Thelonious. I, I think it, that that's a very beautiful thing because you can see the, the passing of the baton. It's like Sammy Davis and Michael Jackson, or, you know, these people where yeah. it's like the, the, where the, it's the passing of the baton and it's done so gracefully and there's mutual admiration, like you said, and respect. That's one of those relationships in the tradition of jazz and the storytelling that always sticks out in my mind is, is Ellington and Monk. Duke not only impacted Thelonious, but he impacted me because if you notice, I've always had this band with, you know, at least three horns. I've always liked it, you know, the small but real, you know, ensemble sound. And that came to pass because that year, or it might have been the year before, my father took me to to Newport with him. And this was the day I, I, I met Duke Ellington. So we got to Newport early in the morning and Duke and his big band were rehearsing. Mm -hmm. And in those days, the stage at Newport was like, it seemed like it was two stories up and you had to walk up this long staircase to get up to the actual stage itself. And the van is playing. And me and my father walk up the steps and I'm standing there by the stairway and Duke is at his piano, but his piano is in the middle of the damn stage. Mm -hmm. And my father walks over to Duke at the piano and they they chat. They, you know, I don't know what they were talking about. They were talking mm -hmm. about something. And then my father walks off to the other side of the stage. And the stage seemed gigantic. And this big van is just wailing, right? And then my father looks to me and he motions to me to come. So now I got across this stage with this big van wailing and i stand there i kind of freeze mm -hmm. and my father says come here right and i walked out on the stage and when i walked in front of that big band it was almost like a wind mm. hitting me, the music and i'll never forget it and i walked across the stage i walked past duke and i went over to my father and from that day on, I knew if I ever had a band, it was going to have a bunch of horns in it. And it's funny. That's how people like Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk affects you. It comes out in all kinds of funny ways. Mm -hmm. That day, the wind of the Duke Ellington Orchestra just, 
it was like magic. It was like a magic sound to me. Mm. Wow. I've been having a ball. Yeah. It, it ain't even right. It ain't, <laughs> I've been having a ball essentially, essentially my whole life. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, just listening to you, just that first sentence. I remember the day I met Duke Ellington. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and this is real life. This this is real life. Or, you know, like you said, realizing who was on the other side of that wall in 1969. Yeah. I mean, quite quite a life. I want to ask you a question about Sweet and Lovely, mm-hmm. which is on this album. Uh, you and I, I don't know if you remember this. I had interviewed you back in maybe 2016 or 17. And you told me something really interesting. You told me that your dad was a big fan of Bing Crosby. And at the time, right, I'm on the other end of the phone. (laughs) Bing Crosby, what? Okay. But, you know, I have my people that I'm, you know, that I really like that maybe some people are like, what? You know, so I said, well, there had to have been something there. But the first thing I heard was like White Christmas in my head and some of these other songs where he always sounds like he's falling asleep. And I just, I didn't get it. I have to, I have to tell you something. I, in researching to talk to you today, I was like, let me hear some more Bing Crosby. Let me just really try to, you know, do the And because I was checking out different versions of Sweet and Lovely, mm-hmm. Ella Fitzgerald, this one, that one. And when I heard Bing Crosby's 1931 recording of Sweet and Lovely, it clicked for me. I mean, it was like a bolt of lightning because it's the closest arrangement and the the phrasing everything it's the closest to monk that i've heard like everybody else who does it all the singers all the play it it's nothing it's like it's th- those versions which i love mm-hmm. and then monk's version of sweet and lovely and yeah. when i heard bing's performance i said that's why he dug <laughs> bing crosby this I guy know. was kind of bad Ving was a badass. I, you know, I had, you know, I, as I told you back then, I thought it was a trick question, because <laughs> I was looking for validation that Ving Crosby was the corniest dude to ever live. And I asked my father, could Ving Crosby sing? And he said, "Are you kidding, man? Are you joking?" Ving had a sound, man. And uh, uh, by the way, um, Thelonious also loved Laurel and Hardy. He would sit, lay in the bed, watching Laurel and Hardy cracking up. <laughs> I said, "Are you joking, Dad?" You yeah. Joking? But he he loved Laurel and Hardy. But um, I think it was very important to Thelonious that you had your own sound. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, Bing Crosby is one of those artists. I mean, he's like Sinatra. He sings three notes. He knows Bing Crosby. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had a lot of respect for that. And he was just listening to Vin Crosby's sound and yeah. saying, cat cat's got a sound, man. He got his own sound. We're all looking for our own sound. Achieve that. That demands, you know, a certain level of respect. Thelonious mm-hmm. was um, he wasn't that complicated. He wasn't as complicated as people would like to think he was. Mm-hmm. So a very, very regular guy on on a lot of levels, you know. Mm-hmm. And when it came to people, 
Um, he was one of those content on your character kind of guys, you know? Mm-hmm. He just didn't care what color you were. Right. That's a tribute probably to his mother, you know, because that's the kind of stuff you learn from your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, she came from, you know, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, which was extraordinary. I mean, that was one of those towns where, you know, you had a railroad track and, you know, if you was on that side of the track, you one life and that side of the track was another life. But she came up in the great migration of the uh, 1920s, African-American migration out of the South. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, although she was a, uh, a domestic worker, mm-hmm. you know, cleaning rooms and all of that kind of stuff, I have a feeling, you know, particularly being a Jehovah's Witness, that she didn't have a lot of the prejudices that a lot of folks have. And I believe she conveyed that to her children. So Thelonious was not hateful. Right. But he was he wasn't unaware. That's the part that I think that's that's the part of the sentence that's no. people it's like you to leave off. Of, you know, yeah. Was he, you know, because he didn't have all those hateful feelings, you know, he was unaware. No, he was aware. They were all aware. Like I said earlier, these were highly intellectual people. Thelonious went to Stuyvesant High School. That was the finest high school in America in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. It's still one of the top still schools. One of the top mm-hmm. schools. So he, he was aware of what was going on around him. Mm-hmm. You know, his... Uh, his feelings, his emotions about it came out came out in his music. His music covers the uh the whole spectrum of joy to pain. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and everything in between. Monk and blues. Uh especially on this album, you've got uh five spot blues and then you've got boulevard blues, which I mean, that Boulevard Blues is some of my favorite Rouse. He's sort of vacillating between these these heavy, like, bluesy riffs and then that lighter, like, those fluid jazz lines, like you were speaking about his his tone. I mean, Rouse is just so heavy on, on that. loved the blues uh you know the blues is the birthplace of a lot of jazz and um you know you had earlier you had um queried me about blue monk 
which is which is another blues, and uh, you know, which has a lyric. Uh, uh, that's the only that's the only tune that I know that Thelonious consciously asked the great vocalist Abby Lincoln to write a lyric to uh, to Blue Monk, you know. But uh, you know, Jamie Foxx. You know, when he made the movie Ray, uh, he told me that um, the, the one or two, two times, I think he only met with Ray Charles once or twice. And one of the times when he met with Ray, Ray told him, he said, man, if you're going to play me, you got to learn how to play the blues. And the greatest blues ever written is a tune called Straight No Chaser by a guy named Thelonious Monk. So, uh, you know, the blues is, is a very, very important. I mean, you know, we jazz musicians, I think to a man, if you can't play the blues, you can't play. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. If you can't play the blues, you cannot play, you know. Uh, and the blues, you know, although it has been commercialized by white America to a great degree and, and oversimplified and formularized or quantified, uh, if you actually listen to the great originators of the blues, people like Robert Johnson, mm -hmm. you'll find that it was actually kind of a free form. You know, if you listen to Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey, you know, the blues wasn't this 12 bar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a blues and a blues composition, the first, com the first verse might be... Uh, eight measures and the second verse might be 14 and a half measures <laughs> third you know verse might be seven measures you know and it would go like that it was very free form you know uh which makes sense because the blues was born uh of the children of slaves who didn't have any freedom mm -hmm. so it makes sense that they came up originally with a music form that was free that you could do whatever the hell you wanted to do mm. you know? and so i think it was important on this album that Thelonious made and for every other jazz artist whether you're talking about charlie parker or you're talking about uv blake mm -hmm. and noble sissel the blues was essential Emotionally, the blues was essential, not only musically, but lyrically, because the, the blues was the forum in which we could address our joys and our grievances. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, the fact that he recorded uh, the blues was just an essential component, an essential emotional component for Thelonious and every other jazz musician, whether you're talking modern jazz musicians, you know, mm -hmm. like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock, or you're talking originalists like, you know, Louis, Louis Armstrong and Buddy Bolden. Mm -hmm. the, blues, the blues was always essential. So I think it's it's there because it had to be there. He writes a song for the five spot, we know that he first recorded there in 1958 
and the great Johnny Griffin record came out of the five spot. Because I, I feel like Thelonious wrote about people and places that he had an, a, a real affinity for. That I feel like that was his way of expressing his joy and affinity. And I think, at least it seems to me that um, there are certain venues that are just immediately associated with uh, a particular artist, you know, mm-hmm. Coltrane and the, the live, you know, the Village Vanguard, like just certain, there's certain musicians where the the venue and the artist, it's almost synonymous. How important were venues to your dad, especially when there were real roadblocks in the early days, you know, whether it was the, the cabaret license or just racism overall, the venue where you felt safe to play, where you felt good about playing, you know, that, that I'm sure that had to be so important to him. Yeah. Well, you know, not only venues, but people, you know, um, you know, when it comes to venues, you know, uh, he had a real good time at the Bolivar Hotel. And so he wrote Blue Bolivar Blues Are. You know, and they used to have jam sessions up there like crazy. Uh, the Baroness had had rented, a, I don't know if she rented the whole damn floor or something like that, a giant suite, put a piano in there, and they'd have wonderful jam sessions up there. And then he wrote the Five Spot Blues because he loved the Five Spot. And even a, a composition that people don't associate with a venue, but he had good times recording uh, at Rudy Van Gelder's studio. And so he wrote a tune called Coming on the Hudson, which had to do with that time in his life. And then when it came to people, well, let's see. He wrote Skippy for my mother's sister, Skippy. He wrote In Walk Bud for Bud Powell. He wrote uh, Crepus School with Nelly for my mother. He wrote Little Rudy Tootie for me. Although, you know, I always realized that my sister was a daddy's girl, classic daddy's girl, because of all the tunes that he wrote for people, whether, you, you know, your brother Oscar T. Uh, but um, uh, uh, he wrote uh, he wrote Boo Boo's Birthday for my sister. But then she's the only one he wrote two tunes for because he also wrote a tune called Green Chimneys. And Green Chimneys, Green Chimneys is the name of the private school that my sister went to. You dig? So I always say, well, he wrote one tune for me, but he wrote two tunes for Boo Boo. So I, I, <laughs> he was daddy's girl. Yeah. And, absolutely. And then he wrote, uh, 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 he wrote Panonica for uh, the Baroness. jackie jackie for your Aunt Jackie. You know, I mean, uh, it's amazing. He was, you know, again, he was very, very aware of the people and the things around him, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, it was like kind of weird for me because people would always bring all this eclectic bullshit to me, you know? Mm. Leading the whole rap was always that he was like unaware, you know, he was, you know, like he was so into his music, he had his piano in his kitchen. No, he was so goddamn poor, 
and the apartment was so goddamn tiny that there was nowhere else to put the piano but in the room that happened to be not only the kitchen, but it was the living room. The bathroom was right off of it. I mean, give me a fucking break, people. Mm -hmm. You know? But, you know, mythology, legacy. Exactly. Sometimes fiction, they try to make the, 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 like you said earlier in the the top of the conversation, the real, the reality is always more fascinating than what people try to come up with. I'm reminded of that story that speaking of, you know, uh, people thinking he was so out of it. That's that time that uh, Uncle Thelonious, Tina Brooks, Oliver Beaner, I think, uh, oh, I can't remember who else. We're all on the stoop when the stoop Oh, Elmo, <laughs> Elmo Hope, when the whole stoop collapsed in and the media came and yeah. they wanted this statement from your dad and he doesn't give them what they're looking for. And then no. he, when he finally says something, he says, Elmo Hope's the greatest pianist in the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. And when he was asked, why did you say that? Because it sounded so left field. He said, because... Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but that's a way to get the press to focus. That's a way to get his name out there. That's a way to get people to pay attention to him. So, I mean, and that's brilliant. You use your, you know, your soundbite moment where everybody really just cares about how you are faring after this weird, Mm -hmm. you know, freak accident. And he had the foresight to say that. And it sounded weird to people, but it, it was, it was genius. Yeah, well, you know, Downbeat had a, they used to have a thing called a blindfold test. Mm-hmm. You know, and they would play music for cats and they would, you know, you'd say, oh, that's so and so. And so they were talking to Thelonious and, you know, they wanted to, um, you know, first of all, Yubi Blake told a great story. You know, I remember we had a fire drill at private school and it was a kid. I'll never forget his name. His name was Steve Cannon Geyser. And we're going down the, the fire escape during the fire drill. And he turned to me and he said, yeah, monk, my father says your father can't read music. It came out of nowhere. But it was to perpetuate this anti-intellectualism that was put on black jazz musicians. Now, Yubi Blake said what they would, where that comes from is because African-American musicians would go get the music and commit it to memory so that when they went to play it, the white restaurateurs and club owners would think those colored guys just do that. Because if they knew that they had to get the music from the paper like everybody else. Then mm-hmm. the brothers would be out of work. Mm-hmm. They, so now they're doing they're doing this this blindfold. They're doing this interview with Thelonious, and they played some Errol Garner, great piano player. Mm-hmm. And the word on and Errol Garner didn't Errol Garner didn't read, right? So to perpetuate that bullshit, they say to Thelonious, the reporter, hey, you know, Errol Garner can't read music. What do you think of that? Right? Mm -hmm. 
And you know what the lawyer says? <laughs> he says, shit, you hear what that man just played? He don't need to read no music. You know? And went, again, like with Elmo, he went completely the opposite of what they expected to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think he should study it, da 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 All the lawyer said was, he don't need to read no music. Do you hear what he's playing? Big thank you. You know, so Thelonious was always good for that, you know, for not saying necessarily, just like, as I said in the beginning, when the guy had said, Thelonious, you're in the jazz encyclopedia. And Thelonious, rather than say, oh, really? Wow, man, that's great. He says, oh, I'm famous? Ain't that a bitch? <laughs> because he knew he was famous. In fact, what had happened was, the year before, I think it was the year before, was the first year of the Jazz Encyclopedia, which was a Leonard Feather production. And he had left Thelonious out. So the first edition of the Jazz Encyclopedia was inaccurate. Of course, of all people, it didn't have Thelonious Monk in it. Mm. You know, it's... It, like I said, Angelica, this uh, being monk son thing is uh, has been an adventure. And again, an another factoid for all your viewers and listeners is um, in my earlier years, in my early career, I was called Thelonious Monk Jr. Mm. Right? I was even calling myself Thelonious Monk Jr. On uh, my first... Uh, jazz cd the last composition is a tune called think of one and i was in the studio when my father originally recorded think of one and the engineer rudy van gelder had me actually slate the recording and so in my recording of think of one it starts out with me at four or five years old saying this is thelonious monk jr 632 take one which was the take number yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what that that's what that is. But the reason I mentioned that is for all your viewers and listeners to know that the guy that we all love is actually Thelonious Monk Jr. I'm actually Thelonious Monk the third, and my son is actually Thelonious Monk the fourth. That's right. <laughs> think of Thelonious Monk Jr. Don't think of me. Think of my dad. Oh, I love that. I love that. To my cousin, my brilliant, wonderful cousin, thank you so much. I, I mean, this... It's been its been a gas, as I said from the beginning. It, it's been a gas to talk to you. And you are so astute when it comes to this music. You, you, you just, you're so on top of stuff. You, you know, you're on top of me and my dad, but you're on top of, the, of everybody. And, and you know everybody. And it's just, uh, I'm just... Damn, damn, she's so good at all this shit. And I remember when she was just, when she popped out, I remember when you popped out, Angelica, and here you are. God bless you, girl. Oh, God, thank you. I've had, I've had a ball talking with you. And anytime you need me, anything you need from me, you just let me know and you got it. Thank you so much. T.S. Monk, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Love you to life. Okay. Bye-bye, darling. See you soon. See you soon.
Thank you for joining us for the second part of our special two-part conversation with T.S. Monk in celebration of the 60th anniversary of Monk's Dream. Listen on your smart speaker by saying, play Milestones, celebrating the culture. And if you're enjoying the content, please be sure to subscribe and review this episode on Apple Podcasts. Milestones is a production of WBGO Studios. Production assistance by Corey Goldberg. Theme music by Riley Glasper. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup by visiting wbgo.org slash studios.